Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing insights into COVID-19 impacts on cognitive health and the world's first pancreatic cancer blood test. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xox Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xox.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nabulsi. Thanks for coming today. Aisha, I'll uh, let you take it away with our first topic. Thanks, Sarah. So I just wanted to touch on some of the highlights from the recent Alzheimer's Association International Conference that took place uh, at the end of July. And uh, I was at a session virtually. Uh, It was very interesting. They were talking about the um, relationship between COVID and cognitive health. So we all know that COVID-19 can have uh, pretty significant long-term health impacts as we're seeing. Um, And this phenomenon is dubbed um, long COVID where some patients have symptoms that linger for weeks and months after infection. So in addition to respiratory and GI symptoms, long COVID-related Um, impairments can also include short or long-term neurological symptoms, Uh, for example, such as the loss of smell and taste, which can be acute, but can also, uh, in some patients, last for uh, weeks and even months, as well as cognitive and attention deficits, um, essentially brain fog. So researchers are trying to understand the biological uh, mechanisms that are underlying some of these neuropsychiatric de- uh, deficits after infection with the novel coronavirus and how um, COVID-19 may overall impact uh, cognitive health. So at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, or AAIC, um, this year, uh, we had uh, some researchers share their insights into brain dysfunction following COVID-19. And among uh, some of the research that was presented, there was a study that actually looked at associations between biological markers of brain injury, neuroinflammation, as well as Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's disease-related dementias and neurological symptoms in COVID-19 patients. So in addition, um, there was another uh, study that uh, involved an international consortium of scientists that worked together collaboratively to collect and evaluate the long-term effects of COVID-19 on cognitive health and the central nervous system in general. And they found that uh, older adults are more likely to experience cognitive impairments, including a persistent lack of smell, after getting infected with uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus compared with younger adults. And these were initial findings based on data from Greece and Argentina. And they also saw that these effects could be long-lasting in some cases. So to take a look at um, the study that involved looking at uh, neuroinflammatory and Alzheimer's disease blood biomarkers, uh, 
that study actually took a look at various biomarkers, including uh, T-tau, neurofilament light, um, um, some species of amyloid beta, and as well as phosphorylated tau. So this study was conducted at the New York University Langone Health, and the researchers wanted to see whether these plasma biomarkers that were associated with neurological uh, conditions could be detected in older patients over the, over the age of 60 hospitalized with COVID-19. And they wanted to compare the presence and levels of these markers in those who experienced new neurological symptoms associated with COVID-19 and compare uh, that, uh, those patients with those that did not experience any neurological symptoms following infection. Uh, the study was led by Dr. Thomas Wisniewski, who's a professor of neurology, pathology, and, psychiat and psychiatry at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And the researchers looked at plasma samples from 310 patients that were admitted to the New York University uh, Langone Health Hospital that had COVID-19. All of them were positive for SARS-CoV-2, and of them, 158 had neurolo neurological symptoms, sorry, and 152 did not. And the most common symptom was confusion due to toxic metabolic encephalopathy, or TME. And the researchers found that in cognitively normal COVID-19 patients that had TME, uh, they had higher levels of a lot of the biomarkers that they looked at in their panel. So, for example, phosphorylated uh, tau and beta amyloid compared to patients that did not have uh, TME. And they all they actually found that there were no significant differences between the patients um, in terms of uh, or with respect to beta amyloid, um, one of the specific uh, uh, isoforms that they looked at. And so that's very interesting that, that there was a strong correlation found between these serum biomarkers of uh, neuronal injury, neuroinflammation, and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the correlation between these markers and the presence of neurological symptoms in COVID-19 patients. And so this uh, indicates that COVID-19 patients could perhaps um, experience an acceleration of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's disease-related dementia symptoms and pathology. So this was a very interesting study. And of course, uh, Dr. Wisniewski says that more longitudinal research is needed to study how these biomarkers could impact um, the cognitive health of individuals who had COVID-19 uh, in the long term. So yeah, very, very interesting study. And it, I think it just goes to highlight again uh, how much we don't know about long COVID, of course, being a new uh, type of infection that we've been dealing with for the past year and a half or so. And that long COVID is a very real thing. And very interestingly how, you know, after recovering for some, from some infections, we all experience some kind of brain fog and kind of like just pass it off. Okay, it'll go away. But the fact that there seems to be a biological, um, there seems to be a biological basis for some of uh, the things that we're seeing, some of the neurological deficits and symptoms that we're seeing in long COVID um, with respect to these biomarkers, these um, neurological biomarkers that seem to be changing. It's very, um, I think it's, it's, 
it's it's very important that we continue to look at these and it's pretty profound. Just wanted to get your thoughts on this. So just to clarify, were some of the patients who were included in this research, did they already have um, an Alzheimer's diagnosis? No. Or they didn't? Okay. okay. They didn't, yeah. Okay, because I saw they were, yeah, when you were, were saying they were over, you know, a certain age, you, you think a certain proportion of them might already have no. some signs of dementia. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think there are two parts of this. There is the part of... Um, you know, seeing whether or not being infected and having COVID-19 would exacerbate symptoms or, or uh, increase the or hasten the progression of, of um, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and, you know, the, the question of whether or not it would, you know, cause those cognitive symptoms in someone who was otherwise like normal before yeah. becoming infected, right? So yeah. I think it's really alarming. And I, I think with Alzheimer's and other dementias already, um, you know, being on the rise with our aging population and, and putting such an incredible burden, even right now today on, you know, the healthcare system, um, I think it's really concerning and is something that we'll have to monitor uh, and see if if we start to see more people, you know, developing these symptoms, and perhaps mm -hmm. even at an earlier age. I mean, I think there are so many questions here, but it's good that um, that that these researchers are kind of following this. But yeah, it's concerning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you brought up some good points in terms of they did t only take a look at a certain subset, um, the over sixty. Uh, or in this case, a cohort that consisted of people over the age of 60. But it could very well, it'd be interesting to see um, whether or not you see the same types of um, changes occurring in younger people as mm -hmm. well. So yeah. And yes, these were cognitively normal people. Mm -hmm. So they did not have any, any uh, diagnosis of any type of a dementia or Alzheimer's. So mm. That's yeah, I think, yeah, just, uh, just underscores the sort of the significance of long COVID. I think people don't really understand, you know, what it is. And I think it's, it's, uh, this highlights that it's a very real thing. So mm -hmm. I have a question. Uh, do we know of any other, you know, infections that may lead to like other forms of mm -hmm. dementia like this as well? Cause it, it like kind of seems like COVID can lead to like a lot of issues um, or, you know, they're coming out now, but yeah. Are there any, like, can we compare this? Like it's, it's, it, you may not know, but I'm just, I'm just curious yeah. whether like there are other um, causes uh, of dementia that are like genetic. Um, I mean, genetic causes uh, are a separate kind of a thing, but I do know that in some cases, I, I think I've come across um, theories that there might be some types of bacterial infections that might trigger like Alzheimer's type symptoms. So there is that. So it's not completely um, out of the line for this type of a thing to be seen um, with COVID as a virus. So, but I think really at this point, like so little is known um, about sort of the mechanisms and the, the sort of things that lead to things like uh, dementias and Alzheimer's, but yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. I'm seeing a few, I just did a quick Google search on this, mm -hmm. but I see a paper uh, that says, 
Some viral infections have been associated with cognitive mm. impairment in Alzheimer's disease. So they point out um, herpes simplex virus, uh, type yeah. 1, cytomegalovirus, uh, and some bacterial species as well, like chlamydia. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I remember the bacterial infections, yeah. So, mm-hmm. And one of them that they they um, point out too is helio, uh, Heliobacter pylori. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that, yeah. Then that's sort of like a gut infection, right? And, and I think like in recent years, there's been a real focus on the connection between like gut health and brain health. And I think your gut is often referred to as sort of your second brain. Mm -hmm. And there's more of a connection there than anyone realized previously. Uh, So I think that stands to reason that like, even if some of these, um, viral or bacterial infections like aren't penetrating the brain necessarily there are still long-reaching uh, you know effects on um on cognition so yeah that's an interesting question sydney what would yeah. be interesting to see is um i know that the study was done on people older than 60 is that right yeah um i'm wondering if in the future people that were diagnosed with covid if there's mm-hmm. a correlation to them getting alzheimer's or um, mm-hmm. some sort of neurological disease but i guess we won't know anytime soon but, right um that's also interesting if there is any sort of like ongoing um study on that do you know um, I would I would think that definitely these studies are ongoing because this is this preliminary data that was mm. pre- presented at the conference. So definitely um, the studies are ongoing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, Mira. And it's going to take time to be able to answer those questions, right? And I think coming out of the pandemic, there are going, there's going to be such a flurry of research and that's going to continue, you know, yeah. for decades to come to yeah. understand this. And um, I can only imagine that there are some really like robust patient registries because we have mm. just so much, so much more data, data. Um, on, you know, people who, who um, have COVID and, and that sort of thing uh, that I, I mean, hopefully it'll be easier to kind of study and follow that and, and figure out, okay, are these people more at risk of, um, of Alzheimer's or other dementias? What can we do about that? Maybe there'll be a treatment then that will be, um, applicable to them. Um, yeah, those are certainly questions that need to be answered, I think in the coming years. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out about this research was I know they were looking specifically at like blood biomarkers Mm -hmm. for things like tau and amyloid beta. Um, I wonder if like future um, studies will use more like PET scans. I think imaging. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like more accurate, but I know they're trying to move more towards, you know, non-invasive like Mm. um, and more widely available things like blood biomarkers. Um, But I could see studies using like PET scans to find a beta in the brain and really kind of like quantify it and and see. But I think this is like a really good preliminary study. Mm, Absolutely. So moving from this, uh, from actually uh, from this kind of blood biomarker conversation to another one. Um, so pancreatic cancer is um, a very is among the deadliest of cancers because it's so difficult to detect early. Um, number one, because it, uh, just of the location of the pancreas in, itself, because it's so deep in the ab- uh, abdomen. And usually it's found in later stages. And so it has a five-year survival rate of just around 6%. And I'm sure that number, you know, is improving with um, 
you know, we have, we do have better sort of treatment and care strategies, but uh, generally pancreatic cancer has a poor prognosis. So a new blood test though, developed by a Swedish diagnostic firm called Immunovia could soon change that as I'm kind of saying. So of course, uh, liquid biopsies are a huge area of research um, in, in the field of oncology and cancer. And uh, this could really be a game changer, especially for aggressive cancers that are hard to detect, like pancreatic cancer. So Immunova's diagnostic offering is called the Imray Pancandy test, and it's a blood test for the detect for the early detection of pancreatic cancer and it's been approved by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and the Department of Public Health has already begun to using it to test patients for uh, pancreatic cancer and uh, Immunova Immunovia Incorporated actually received the um, uh, sorry, the approval uh, for at its Massachusetts uh, site. So this um, M-Ray Pancandy test is a laboratory-developed test, and it's being touted as the world's first blood test that is specifically designed to help in the early detection of pancreatic cancer. And the way it does that is that it looks at different biomarker signatures in the blood, and um, it can you know, by looking at biomarkers associated with the cancer, it can help detect it at earlier stages and help improve patient survival um, when surgical resection is, is possible. So the Imray Pancandy test involves measuring nine different biomarkers in the serum, and this panel consists of a combination of different Im um, immunological and tumor biomarkers, including CA199, which is an established marker of pancreatic and other cancers as well. But it can also be associated with other non-cancerous conditions, for example, like gallstones, and it can also be elevated in healthy individuals. So that's why using it as a sole um, biomarker on its own isn't the best strategy. So here we have a combination of nine of, of eight other uh, serum biomarkers that are used in conjunction with um, CA199 in this panel. And then the biomarkers are assessed using an algorithm and that enables for the detection of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And the blood test was developed using Immunovia's proprietary immunoproteomics-based MRAY tech, uh, technology platform. And the company says that this platform has the potential to detect um, complex diseases earlier and with high accuracy. And it's one of its bases is that it looks at immune responses to diseases in the blood. So looking at immunology immunological biomarkers in the blood. And so the MRI test is based on microarray technology. So basically you have single chain fragment antibodies against the different biomarkers. And these are printed onto a slide as a microarray. And so you have the different antibody biomarkers present on the same array. And the workflow just basically involves applying a serum sample to the antibody microarray and then a fluorescent scanner will read it and measure antibody reactivity to the biomarkers in the serum, and then those measurements are fed into a computer software, and an algorithm then will um, 
produce a result of uh, a high risk signature negative or a negative for high risk signature or a borderline signature. And in a validation study, the test was actually found to be pretty good at detecting early stage, so stage one and two pancreatic ductal adenocarcinomas with a specificity of 99% and a sensitivity of 89%. Um, in the group cohorts that have familial or, uh, or hereditary uh, risk. So Immunovia says that this test um, is actually intended for individuals at a high risk for developing hereditary-based uh, pancreatic cancer. And it's available from its Massachusetts site. And um, yeah, so pancreatic cancer, I, I think... Um, you know, I've I have a background in oncology uh, research, and so um, often would come across pancreatic cancer, and it's it's a devastating disease. And like I mentioned, because it's so problematic to be able to catch it early. So this was, um, you know, when I saw this uh, new test, it, it really was. Um, it's, it provides some hope for, for patients, and I think uh, hopefully it'll be a game changer for uh, diagnosing pancreatic cancer. So, yeah, just wanted to uh, sort of share that, and uh, what, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's really good to catch things earlier uh, in any cancer, but particularly mm -hmm. in something that's hard to diagnose, like pancreatic cancer. Um, and I think it's like an important thing to point out um, uh, and just sort of reiterate what you said about this being a test, you know, specifically for people who have that uh, familial link as well. Yeah. Um, and in, in that it's really you know, largely a test to assess your risk. So it won't necessarily, it's not really a true diagnostic. I'm true. assuming it would be followed yeah. up with something else if they do a, like a biopsy or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's still really important. I wonder about, um, I wonder about these things all the time, these big leaps that, that are made in terms of, you know, detecting things earlier. I wonder about, how patients will be able to access them. And I think in the U.S. in particular, that's very much a question of um, cost and like whether insurers will cover it. So, you know, I'm assuming that everyone in Massachusetts that has a family history of pancreatic cancer, you know, won't have access to this test, even though it would be great if they did. Um, and so I often think that becomes the real barrier, like once mm -hmm. something like this is approved. Um, and was there, did you find out anything about when this would be available outside of that state? Is it, it's currently only improved in Massachusetts or is it that the lab is in Massachusetts and sort of the, yes. from around the country? Exactly. So okay. it's the latter. So, um, okay. their lab is in, Ma in Massachusetts, but it's available, um, throughout the U.S. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, actually, um, I just looked at the stats. So like, I think only 10% of all pancreatic cancers are familial or hereditary based. Mm -hmm. So that, that's just a, it's a very important, um, uh, group uh, or cohort, but it does, it doesn't address sort of the risk of people like that sporadic. are not in that sporadic, yeah. exactly. cohort. Yeah. So that's another thing to consider mm -hmm. as well. And like you said, yeah, of course, um, access and, and barriers to access is a real thing, especially in the U S. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as a avid Jeopardy fan, Alex Trebek mm, and yes. his pancreatic I mentioned cancer, that, yeah, in the article that, there, yeah. yeah <laughs> like, the, I think he brought kind of more awareness to that. So, and yeah. I wish that this had come out like 10, 15 years ago, so we could still have him. But um, yeah, and I was also wondering, like, um, what makes pancreatic cancer so much more like, you know, deadly than than other cancers? I think like I mentioned, just the just the location of the pancreas, it's so deep in the abdomen that um, and also, you know, you don't really have a lot of symptoms in earlier stages. So that wouldn't prompt people to, you know, go for a checkup or anything. So all of those kinds of things um, play into why it's usually detected at such later stages. And that's why it's so deadly. Yeah. Also, yeah. it's it's pretty difficult to resect, um, again, given its location. So I think there, the surgery for it um, is, is the Whipple surgery, and it's pretty invasive, pretty intense, and um, it's, a, it's a pretty high-risk procedure, and so it's uh, very difficult to, to get at. Hmm. Um, yeah, I wonder why this... Um discovery came on now and not earlier it seems like it seems to me I don't know as a non-scientist it yeah. seems like a easy kind of way to head and trying to find out if you have pancreatic cancer but I guess not right yeah see the problem with a lot of these biomarker based tests is uh, specificity and sensitivity right so like the CA199 uh, biomarker I believe it's also used um, sort of to flag for ovarian cancer and other cancers. But like I mentioned, it can't be used on its own because it's elevated even in normal conditions and in normal healthy individuals sometimes. So these biomarkers are not, they're kind of finicky. So they're not like a surefire thing that, okay, you know, you're positive for this and you have this cancer. It's a good place to start. So now you see more of these panels that are looking at multiple biomarkers together. Mm -hmm. Because I remember, let's say 10 years ago when I started, you know, when I would like my stints in research and in my master's, they were mainly looking at like one or two biomarkers for specific cancers. But, um, you know, that's, that's not sort of the approach that people are finding works. Also, um, the technologies, um, like I mentioned, the sensitivity and specificity, that's been a real challenge mm. to be able to really achieve high um, uh, specificities and sensitivity so that you don't have false things like false positives. So that's, that's been a real challenge as well in development of these kinds of biomarker-based um, serum blood tests. And there are real downsides to you know, you're always going to have some proportion of false positives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are real challenges and downsides to that. So if you get a false positive, there's obviously the, um, you know, like stress put on the yeah. patient of thinking, oh, no, maybe I have pancreatic cancer and, and you don't because it's a false positive. There's um, then you have to sort of go down the line of like, what's the next procedure to do to actually, you know, diagnose or confirm this result, which may be more invasive. It's, mm-hmm. you know, but you got to think of the cost as well, I think, in all of these things. Um, and so you're right, getting that specificity and sensitivity as high as it can be is, is the main thing. And so I have a feeling it's, you're right, it's the combination of these nine yeah. serum biomarkers that make it a more robust test. Um, and maybe it's, you know, it's taken this amount of time to be able to validate those biomarkers mm-hmm. as, you know, being good enough uh, in this case, in, in these cases of familial um, pancreatic cancer. So yeah, 
Yeah, but the field, I think, in the last couple of years has really been kind of burgeoning with a lot of these liquid biopsies. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been seeing them a lot. And I think it's, um, we've, you know, compared to like, let's say 10 years ago, like the I'm seeing a lot more of these tests that have improved so much in terms of um, being able to be more robust and having, you know, more specific panels of uh, biomarkers and um, achieving better sensitivities and specificity. So Mm -hmm. really, really cool to see this. Yeah, and I think the the scary thing for all of these tests as well, as far as they've come, is also the the potential for the false negative results and so then you go no further and maybe you do i mean Mm -hmm. you it's not saying for certain you do or do not have pancreatic cancer it's not diagnostic in that way um but it's sort of the best we have right now to to identify those high-risk individuals that then would progress to the next stage of you know confirming um confirming that diagnosis yeah so. essentially it's more of a screening tool type mm-hmm. of a thing yeah but that's like anything right everything's anything, gonna yeah. have yeah the, the risk yeah. of, of false positive and false negative but overall i think it's a really positive thing and i i hope it's um widely accessible to to uh people who would benefit from it mm-hmm. yeah Okay, well, that's the end of this episode of the Xox Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Xox Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com, or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.